Hello, hello, welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. We are breezing through season four. And just to give you a little bit of high, we are going to be doing another AMA season over the summer. So if you've got a burning question, get it in your mind. And when I put it up on the internet, you can send it to me. Or, I am... Well, this week, out of sheer boredom in lockdown, I have revamped the website. No more excess of things I was telling you about. If you just go to straighttalkingenglish.co.uk, you can see my videos, you can catch up on podcasts, you can buy my books, you can donate to the show, buy me a coffee, become a Patreon, do whatever you want. straighttalkingenglish.co.uk And if you want to submit a question for AMA, you can click on contact, support the show if you want to make a donation. That name again it's straighttalkingenglish.co.uk. I am your host as ever, Catherine, and today we're going to be talking about the poem Emigrate. All right, it's a pretty good one, and this is one of the times where I dramatically disagree with everybody. Story of my life. Right, Carol Rumins is our poetry. Is our poetry? Is our poet? A lot of the revision guides I've seen start off with her inspiration is because she lived in multicultural South London. And like, she lived in Forest Hill when she was writing this one in the 90s. And Forest Hill is not that multicultural if we're being honest um it's, it's really not like i used to live in sydenham just before i started this podcast actually and then i lived in greenwich sydenham is like down the hill from forest hill sydenham's slightly more multicultural but forest hill really isn't it's got the horniman museum though which is a lot of fun however if you get the bus down the hill from there you the other side you'll get to catford which definitely is but Cath- Catford and Lewisham are not known for their Eastern European community traditionally. It was always the Greeks and the Irish. I know that because my grandparents were part of that community, part of the Irish immigrant community there. At the moment, I would say most of my students who live around there are second, third generation Nigerian people or British Caribbean. So I'm officially rubbishing that. However, Carol Rumin still writes for The Guardian. I've cited quite a few of her articles on poetry for uh, the Love and Relationships book I'm working on and Power and Conflict as well. She did do some translation from Russian of Russian poetry in the 90s. Um, like Russian language press that wanted to be published in England. And that was what first hit me off. A lot of revision guides also say this could be anywhere. She hasn't named the place. It could be Syria. It could be Afghanistan. And yeah, the city isn't named. And I guess there's this sense of like universality and these questions about like who is an immigrant? Who is a migrant? Who is an expat? yeah 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 I get that I get that and that bit in revision guides yeah emigre is far more of like a glamorous term however it's the e emigre an emigrant is someone who leaves a country an immigrant with an i is someone who goes into a country so we would say like the best synonym I guess would be migrant right 
the double E ending indicates it's a female. So we've got a, a female narrator. That's a French thing. Like you get the single E or the double E. But emigre is 90% used for Russians or USSR people who left shortly before or after the Russian Revolution. I am very reliably informed by the Australian boyfriend. It's also used by South African people and some groups who've gone to Australia. But British English, it's a Russian person who sort of left around the revolution in 1917. I also reckon this is what she's thinking about for a couple of reasons other than I'm get, I was going to get to. But... We're going to talk a little bit about these real people, these real emigres. I'm also going to be referring to a book by Brian Koretnik, which is in Penguin. It's called Russian Emigre Short Stories, and it is fabulous. So Brian Koretnik points out that just after 1917, Russian expatriates lived as true refugees, preserving the hope the Bolshevik regime would fall. Bolsheviks think Lenin, think what would later be the Communist Party. A lot of people would want to leave because, let's face it, if you've got nice stuff and Lenin shows up and is like, nah, 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 it's all nationalised now, you don't get to keep your nice stuff, you might want to leave. Alternatively, if you're the victim of violence or you can see the way things are turning, if you're looking at your own family background and you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't have the kind of background that would be desirable when this regime change, you might want to leave. If you're like, actually, the Tsar, the Tsar Nicholas II, the King of Russia, is like the most awesome dude ever, then you might well want to leave as well. Interestingly, this is something I've thought about for a while. If there is a communist regime change in England, is my background sufficiently red? And I've concluded, yes. You have to go back a long way in my history to find anyone who actually had employees. So I reckon, communist revolution, I'll be fine. Anyway, back to Brian Koretnik. He said, as the years passed, however, and the fledgling Soviet state consolidated its power and gained international recognition, some hopes that it would fall diminished until they were all but dashed by the mid-1920s, turning today's political, yesterday's political refugees, who had fled war and oppression, into émigrés à l'ancien régime, and establishing them in their newfound status as exiles. So l'ancien régime, again, sorry, you know I can't pronounce Romance languages, is the term in French for pre-revolutionary France, Louis XVI, all that. And France gives them this kind of glamour. Like, oh, you're fleeing from our past, blah, blah, blah. Paris became a massive centre of this émigré community. Brian Koretnik again. Paris had Russian-language newspapers, a literary scene, a theatre, schools, night classes, orphanages, an old people's home, a cathedral and restaurants. They'd been declared stateless by the Bolsheviks, so their bureaucratic needs were not administered by the ambassador who took up residence in the embassy after France recognised the Soviet Union from 24. 
However, this lawyer, Vasily Malkov, went on running this office's receipts and it became this like parallel thing. He married them, buried them, certified their papers. A lot of these emigrates were ex-officers. So they'd been involved in the Tsar's army during the Russian Civil War and they correctly asserted that the communists would not be super happy taking them as prisoners of war so they got the heck out of dodge it was kind of was this funny like cliche that in paris in the 2030s you would have a grand duke as a waiter a princess sewing or a taxi driven by a general this dispossessed community had a bit of a problem a lot of these emigres didn't want to accept their fate. They wanted to be Russians. They wanted to go home. There were these night schools that taught their children Russian literature and philosophy. Restaurants and cafes you could go to and sing Russian songs. These are the people who would see their city as being quote unquote sick with tyrants. They care about their city. They love their city. And it's these tyrants who's taken over. Even though your classic is gonna see a tyrant as being the communist we gotta think about the 90s as well this was written in the early 90s we are talking just after the breakup of the soviet union in 92 after fall of the berlin war in 89 so look these up this is where you've got the tanks Think about, if you Google Solidarity in Poland, Solidarność, the political party that campaigned heavily. Look up Prague and the history of Prague. I was there February last year. Museum of Communism is absolutely harrowing. But there were these tanks in the street. All the way through these emigre accounts, we've got this problem with papers. If someone's fled, they don't have their right documents with them and it becomes this bureaucratic nightmare the line i have no passport there's no way back at all seems to be like this concern that comes up over and over again and this is the first reason why i think our poet is talking about russians in the 1920s because the voice that she creates is very similar to the voices that were speaking out at the time. Get onto that in a sec. A book that really informed me as well when I was writing about this was by this guy called Mark Mazawa. It's called What You Did Not Tell, A Russian Past and the Journey Home. So this guy decides to start doing his family tree after his dad dies. And he knows that his granddad was Lithuanian and he was an emigre. And he actually like traces it back. This guy was like a hardcore Jewish anarchist. And then became like a typewriter salesman. Like it was amazing, this guy. And like he shows up with this like half-brother he conceived in Paris who's now like a right wing conspiracy theorist honestly what you did not tell is a fab book mark mazauer said from my grandparents it had come at a price the price all refugees have to pay because making their home in england meant forsaking other older places with memories of their own one or two of these we knew a little about because during our childhood we would from time to time overhear dad speaking fluent Russian on the phone to relatives in Moscow and Leningrad. Other places were never anything more than names. Smolensk, Vilna, Grodno, Grodnow I think, Riga. 
that cropped up occasionally in anecdotes. I was never sure where they were exactly or who had lived them. It seemed so far away. And when I was reading this book, the thing that stuck out of me was the line that child's vocabulary I've carried here like a hollow doll opens and spills a grammar. Okay, your hollow doll, we're talking about the matryoshka dolls. You know, like the Russian nesting dolls where you've got the big one and it's the mum and then there's another one inside. Again, hint, this is about Russia. He's talking about his granddad, Max. And Mark Mazawa says his wife, Fruma, called him Jivotik, or Little Stomach, because words stayed down there and rarely made their way up to his mouth. He had no difficulty with languages. He spoke four fluently, and his English was impeccable with no trace of an accent. But Max had learned to say no more than was necessary in any of them. So I've worked on and off with English as a second language speakers. Oh my gosh, for literally 10 year. The last job I had that were properly in a classroom rather than, I don't know, whatever it is I do for a living now, was head of EAL at a school. And when you've got a student who comes in with a second language with very low levels of English, there's this magical thing that happens. So nine times out of 10, well, yeah, you get the odd gregarious one. They will be very, very quiet and they will not say anything in class for like six months, three to six months. And that's all right, that's part of the process because at some point their English will reach saturation and it just kind of explodes. And they will go from being that kid who says nothing and nods to being blah, 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 blah. Like you cannot keep them quiet. And it's that spilling that I really relate to. Like all of a sudden you're saturated and it's spilling over. The bright filled paperweight as well. That's a thing that comes up in a lot of these emigre autobiographies. Focusing on these tiny little coloured things, the small memories of stuff. So another account I read was by a lady called Cal Countess Edith Solohob. She was well cool, actually. Her book is called The Russian Countess, Escaping Revolutionary Russia. She grew up as this super privileged girl whose dad was professor of something. She married young to a count and she then had to flee Russia, recover her possessions, and she ended up living in Winchester, of all places. It's really fascinating. But when Edith Solohump looked back at her life, she thinks about this one trip she took with her dad to a sweet shop. She said, I can feel even now the whiff of the warm air full of the most alluring smells meeting us as we entered this shop. Then they go to a florist and she says, there were bowls and bowls of anemones, marguerites, reconciles, mimosas, carnations, roses, and many more. So of all the things she remembers from her dad's house, it's like this, like, like a little sweet shop, like the smell of the sweets and the crinkly paper, papers and the beautiful flowers. Her memories, again, this was like a smack round the face when I saw this. In the line in the poem, the white streets of that city, the graceful slopes glow ever clearer as time rolls its tanks and the frontiers rise between us close like waves. It's so similar to what Edith Solohub experienced in real life. She said, a long life is behind me, so long that it looks like a book of pictures, some clear, some vague, full of light and bright moments and full of blanks where I failed to see or understand what I should have seen and understood at the right moment. The pictures are not less vivid. On the contrary, they have acquired a clearness, which they did not have when the personal reaction was still acute, 
where enemies could not be recalled without bringing with them a pang of sharp pain. And it's this like nostalgic thing. Maybe the city wasn't that nice. Maybe it's what a friend of mine calls graduation goggles, where you look back at your time at uni and you're like, oh, everything was so wonderful. Well, actually at the time it may have been a bit rubbish. It's this shining that comes from the distance of memory but the personification is a thing that a lot of these 1920s russian writers did a lot like in this book of like russian immigration stories that i mentioned i was struggling to come up with only one example of someone doing this they did it all the time like the best one I quite liked was from a guy called Ivan Shmelnyov and it's called Moscow in Shame. Now tell me, tell me if that, this don't strike a chord. When the sun sinks into the ocean, when its last glimmer is extinguished, suddenly there in the opalescent distance comes a smoky scintillation. Flashed within the twilight clouds, a living pulse behind them. Are these the crosses of heavenly belfries? Is this a flicker of their tolling? Look, the horizon has grown dark. The ocean undulates, heedless into a deep blue in the night. Anyone who has lived by the ocean knows the valediction of the sun. The marvellous play of light it saddens me to see it. It calls to mind smoky sunsets, the luster smoky gold and tolling of bells their tolling plays in that luster it has been engraved on my soul since childhood it has become the light itself i remember moscow in disarray the smoke and fire of explosions above the cupolas the glint of the kremlin eagles shining out of the black night the flashing of crosses and towers the crosses called out like beacons. The serene cathedrals had taken fright. I remember my old district. Darkness of autumn nights. The desolateness. He said desolateness, not me. The solitude of blind alleys and passageways. Shadows hid round corners. There were no human faces to be seen, only shadows. And so on throughout Russia. And like, when I was reading these, it was just like a hand from the past had reached out and taken mine and was like this this is the thing she is writing about yes it's building on these experiences of these 1920s people but it's making it sufficiently vague that it applies to now it's modern in the sense that unfortunately we still have to deal with this but it's also this like frozen moment in time itself like a memory like this separation of us and then and modern and past it's one of my favorite ones to teach actually i do love a good emigre it also distressingly reminds me we've got to sort out my partner's citizenship application soon how much do i like printing bits of paper it's a lot so there you go that is my wrap up of some real life emigres and the tone of what they saying the links to this poem carol rumins is still very much alive and writing for the guardian so carol if you're hearing this please get in touch prove me wrong come on the show have a chat have a coffee around my house it's all good right straighttalkingenglish.co.uk click on the links you can buy my books you can support the show you can listen to my podcasts 
I've got my YouTube videos up there as well and I've got a lot of uh, really nice readings to which I own all the rights so there's no issue using it in a class or having a little listen it's all good if you have a look on uh, my YouTube channel I've got all the readings up there it's very nice straighttalkenglish.co.uk find me on Twitter str8talkenglish at Twitter come say hi thank you very very much guys enjoy studying emigrate and I will speak to you very very soon